Welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott, and I'm going to read you a couple of bedtime stories. My fifth and final episode for the Creepy Podcast is out now. It's called Price Check, and it's a found footage style that plays with the idea of EVPs or electronic voice phenomena. So go check out the Creepy Podcast for that and the four other episodes I created for them. This week, since I have such an influx of new listeners, hello by the way, I'm Shelby, and it's such a pleasure to meet you. I thought I'd put together a little sampler of two stories I frequently see mentioned as listeners' favorites. They're both a part of different episodes, and they're all kind of buried in that back catalog, so I think it will be fun to put two favorites in one episode. It'll be a little trip down memory lane for longtime listeners, and a hearty welcome to those who just got here, or maybe at one point you were scared to sleep and didn't hear one or the other. I will add one quick disclaimer. Clearly, these two stories were recorded many years ago, well, many in my own podcast terms, before I had very professional microphones and before I had really figured out my style. So please forgive the quality of these episodes, but again, they have been mentioned to me so many times, and I've seen them mentioned in the wild, on different social medias, on Reddit and things, and so I really thought these would be a great representation story-wise of the show and for some of you to revisit them, but I will say (laughs) they are a little rough around the edges, but please enjoy them. First up, I present to you a story of my own. This is Nuclear Flight. Most of the cabin was asleep at the tail end of a long-haul flight from Singapore to Los Angeles. The lights were still lowered as they had a couple hours left until they reached their destination. The gentle sound of businessmen wired on bad coffee, tapping away at the keyboards of their laptops, was joined by the occasional snoring of a sunburned tourist. A low murmur came from a mother at the back of the plane, reading a story to her child. Altogether, it had been an uneventful flight. No panic attacks, no vomit. Even the smell of 236 passengers wasn't so bad. Inside the cockpit, the pilot and the co-pilot operated the plane quietly. You got this, Kath? I'm going to hit the head, said Dan, the co-pilot, as he takes off his headset. Don't fall in, (laughs) joked the head pilot, Kathy. As Dan entered the small restroom, a tired-looking flight attendant walked into the cockpit. Hey, how you holding up, he says to Kathy, a tinge of sympathy in his voice. Oh, Gerard, I'm good, hon. Kathy sighs. By the time we get back, Ted will have moved all his shit out. I hope the mistress appreciates his international beer can collection. Gerard places a hand on her shoulder. Don't worry, honey. You can do much better than his tacky ass. Bad tan Betty can have him. Kathy laughed. Tears formed in her eyes despite herself, and she quickly blinked them away. Easy for you to say, 
How does it feel to know you'll legally be off the market in a few days? <laughs> it's Gerard's turn to sigh. <laughs> I feel like if my florist hasn't come through with those orchids, then I'm going to set her whole shop on fire. Aww, I've never seen you nervous before. The flowers are going to be beautiful. Just remember to enjoy yourself. My wedding went by so fast it was all a blur. <laughs> Not that it matters now. There was an uncomfortable silence. Way to make it weird, Kathy, she thought to herself. Gerard looked around, feeling incredibly awkward. Finally, he said, Well, I better go check on Vicky. She gets frantic when I leave her alone too long. He gave her one last pat on the shoulder and re-entered the cockpit. Dan still hadn't come out of the bathroom. Either doing coke or backed up from all the coke he's been doing. Gerard narrowed his eyes at the bathroom door. He thought about the ways he could get the company to randomly drug test him. Dan was a homophobic and sexist piece of shit. Kathy was too distracted by her messy divorce to notice any of it. Although... She had also probably just grown used to the sexist jabs from male co-workers over the years, but she never seemed to notice the extra energy Dan had every time he exited the bathroom, or how handsy he got with the female flight attendants. Vicky really did get frantic if left alone for longer than a few minutes. She was relatively new. She looked like she'd be more at home as a showgirl in Vegas. Her big blue eyes always looked confused. Her overprocessed blonde hair was always done up in a white trashy type updo, and she somehow got away with wearing this sparkly hot pink lip gloss that was definitely against uniform regulations. He walked into business class to see her trying to calm down a red-faced man in a suit. Do you know how much fucking money I paid for this goddamn seat? It's supposed to include Wi-Fi. Not that you would know anything about this, but I have very important paperwork to send before 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. His raised voice was starting to cause the sleeping passengers to stir. I'm... I'm sorry, sir. We just... We just aren't getting a signal at all. She looked as if she was about to cry. Gerard shook his head and interjected. Hello there. What seems to be the problem? Gerard smiled a well-practiced professional smile and looked down at the red-faced man. I was just telling the stewardess that my Wi-Fi quit working. I've been telling her for half an hour now, and she still hasn't bothered to fix it. Well, sir, this flight attendant said she checked and we aren't getting a signal. That happens sometimes due to bad weather or... A pudgy pink hand was put up in front of Gerard's face. I don't want to hear excuses. I want my money back. I was guaranteed Wi-Fi, and I need to get these papers out. Gerard put his hand up now. Before 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, I know, sir, I think the entire plane knows. When you clicked that little I agree box when ordering your ticket, you agreed to the fact that the Wi-Fi is not actually guaranteed, and due to maintenance or weather, could be offline at any time during the flight. Now, if you could kindly keep your voice down. Your fellow passengers are trying to sleep. Just as the businessman was about to blow a gasket, the plane hit a huge wave of turbulence, enough to knock Vicky over. 
Sherrod grabbed her just as she was about to hit her head on the armrest of the nearest seat. The fastened seatbelt sign came on immediately. Overhead, Kathy made an announcement. Hey folks, it looks like we're heading into a bad storm. No need to worry, just return to your seats and we should be out of it quickly. Thank you. The plane shook again. Even harder this time. I know this is an odd request, folks, but the flight attendants will be coming around to make sure all window shades are pulled down. As per Regulation 28C, if you could help them out and pull your shades down, then just relax and get some shut-eye. We will be reaching our destination soon. Gerard furrowed his brow. Vicky whispered, What is Storm Regulation 28C? That wasn't on the written test. Make sure all the shades get closed and then go put on your safety harness. It just means the storm is going to get pretty bad and they don't want people to be startled by the sight of lightning hitting the plane. Vicky nodded silently and practically ran. He made a note to remind her that it was incredibly unprofessional to appear panicked in front of the passengers as he walked towards the cockpit. Dan was absent again, either still in the bathroom or having already returned to it. Kathy was staring straight ahead, sitting eerily still. Kath, I just came to see what was... He touched her shoulder as always was stopped mid-sentence when Kathy spun to look at him. Her frizzy red hair was plastered to her freckled cheeks with sweat. Drod! You scared me. Her eyes not quite focusing on his face. Kathy, what the fuck is going on? You and I know damn well that there is no such thing as Storm Regulation 28C. Why are you waking all these people up to close their shades? She chewed her lip in an attempt to stop it from quivering. Tears welled up in her eyes. She began to shake. Finally, she breathed out. It's over. What's over? Kathy, what's over? Whatever it is, we can fix it. Let's just get Dan back in here and maybe you can lay down for a minute. Gerard's mind had immediately gone to the idea of Kathy's bitter divorce. Please do not crash this whole plane of people just because your marriage is over. Dan, is it it coming back? It's all over, Gerard. You said that already, Catherine. What the fuck is over? Why isn't Dan coming back? Gerard was getting angry now. He always got angry when he was scared. We received a major alert. DC and New York are gone. Gone? Destroyed by nuclear bombs. Like in some movie. The alert didn't stop there. There were more incoming reports. Reports that the entire country is about to be hit. That can't be true. Look, Gerard! Kathy pointed out the front window. Gerard hadn't been paying attention to anything but Kathy. And had assumed the flashes of light that were coming in 
or lightning from the storm. He saw explosions happening everywhere across the ground. From so far up, they looked like fireflies. Then pale puffs of smoke drifted up towards the sky. It's a miracle we're even still in the air. We haven't been hit. What about Los Angeles? Can we still land? Can we can we land anywhere? We aren't over the prairies anymore, even if we were. Look at that. They're not just targeting cities. It's everywhere. But what did they say? What did Control say? After the initial alerts, everything went dead. I can't get anyone on the ground or in the air. No one. Not a soul. We may be the only ones left. It was Gerard's turn to start sweating. He felt sick. He thought of his fiance, Paul, and his mother, all his siblings, aunts, uncles, cousins. Were they gone? They couldn't just be gone. The bright flashes of light were almost steady now. There were so many. We don't have enough fuel to make it to Hawaii. Even if we did, I don't want to risk flying over the U.S. any longer than we have to. I think we could turn towards Canada and just go as far as we can before we need to land. Just then, they heard a loud bang. And something heavy hit the door of the cockpit bathroom. Gerard and Kathy locked eyes, blood draining out of both their faces. Dan. Kathy barely got out. What's, what's that? Gerard could barely breathe. Was that a gunshot? Kathy nodded her head slowly, unable to control the quivering of her lip now. She started to sob. After a moment, Gerard took a deep breath and composed himself. Turn to Canada. If that's our only hope, then do it. Maybe we can pick up some mounty signal or something. I'm gonna go I'm gonna go check on the passengers. Gerard entered first class in a daze was immediately met by a mob. They were all speaking at once, asking if they had heard a gunshot, why they had to pull down their shades. These were seasoned flyers, and they had never heard of a regulation requiring shutting the blinds. It became a blur of angry and frightened voices, like bees buzzing around a hive. He looked to his left to see an old woman pulling up her shade. In the deep blackness of the window, he suddenly saw a pinprick of light. And then, the entire plane shook. The anxiety made his stomach lurch. 
His mother once said, everyone holds their nerves in different places. Some people got headaches. Some people grind their teeth. Some bite their fingernails. He got stomach aches. She said that as she wiped the dried vomit off his little face and helped him out of his soiled shirt after he saw a scary movie at a sleepover when he was eight. She had smiled warmly at him and told him it was okay, that everyone got scared every once in a while, and that she would always be there to help make him brave again. As the memory passed, he looked up to see the faces of the passengers, shocked, some disgusted, and some holding their hands over their mouths and noses. He looked down to see he had thrown up all down the front of his uniform. He suddenly made a beeline to the back of the plane to find Vicky. He had to tell her what was happening. She deserved to know. They all deserved to know, but the thought of an entire plane of panicked people was too much to risk. Vicky was also surrounded by a mob of passengers. She was crying and telling them that it was just the weather. It's not just the fucking weather! Have you looked outside? Tell us what the fuck is going on! A man wearing a Hawaiian shirt screamed. She caught sight of Gerard. Gerard, Gerard, please, please, please tell these people what's going on. I keep telling them that it's just the weather, but they keep yelling at me about the lights outside. I told them that it's just lightning. We aren't fucking stupid. I know what lightning looks like. This isn't lightning. The same man exclaimed. The rest of the passengers nodded along. Apparently, they had taken an unspoken vote, and Hawaiian Shirt was elected as their leader. Gerard looked the man in the face. He wasn't being rude. He was scared, and rightfully so. The woman who had been reading to her small child now held him in her lap. She quietly sang to him while looking up at Gerard with frightened, unquestioning eyes. Gerard then stripped off the vomit-soaked button-up and stood there in his undershirt. Something felt very ceremonial about undoing each button, while a group of strangers stood silently watching him. He draped the shirt, along with his name tag, across one of the seats. He was now one of them. Not some corporate drone just trying to get through the day and keep his job by pacifying grown adults with lies about the weather. There is no storm, he began. You're goddamn fucking right there's no fucking storm. The leader started back in. Man, I'm trying to tell you what's going on. Please, just shut your ass up for one second. There was a collective gasp among the passengers. The leader began to stutter out a retort, but then fell silent and nodded for Gerard to continue. There is no storm. The U.S. is being attacked with nuclear weapons. Before they could all shout over him, he raised his voice. We don't know by who and we don't know why. I can think of a few reasons, I'm sure you all can too, but I don't have any answers. 
All I know is that we have lost communication with anyone on the ground or in the sky. Our pilot has turned our flight path toward Canada. So, is it safe in Canada? A young woman from the back asked. Frightened eyes turned hopeful for a whisper of a moment. I don't know. We don't know. We just know that Los Angeles is probably either too dangerous to attempt to land in, or if it's even still there. There were a few screams. Some people immediately began sobbing. Some pulled out cell phones, attempting to call loved ones who no longer existed. Some of them ran to first class. Vicky kept crying. Gerard just stood there, watching as one man attempted to open the emergency door. Before he could even think to react, other passengers had restrained the man and beaten him till he was unconscious. Some passengers simply returned to their seats and stared, or held on to one another. A group of people had formed a prayer circle. They all seemed to be of different faiths. Hey, maybe if they all prayed to different gods, one of them would answer and guide them out of this nightmare. He felt a tug on his undershirt and looked down. The woman with the young child looked up at him. Excuse me, I know this doesn't seem like the time, but does your cart have any applesauce? It's for my little boy. It wasn't the time, but it was a simple request that he could definitely make happen. So, Gerard smiled and said, Yes, ma'am. We do have applesauce. Let me go grab you one. When he brought it back, he saw she had produced an amber-colored prescription bottle. A few pills were scattered on the tray table, and she was crushing them up with her cell phone. She looked up to see him staring. He handed her the container. She tore off the foil lid and used her hand to wipe some of the white powder into the snack. I want him to either wake up in Canada, or in the very least, to not have to see what happens if we don't make it, she explained. He's autistic, and all this craziness is just making him so anxious. Gerard then noticed the little boy had his hands over his ears and his eyes tightly closed shut. When he gets anxious, his stomach starts to hurt, so I don't know if he'll even eat it. She stirred in the powder and began to spoon feed it to her son, but he spat it out. I know it's a little bitter pumpkin. Please eat it, though. She looked up at Gerard, who was still staring. I'm not a monster. It's just the best thing I can do for him right now. Gerard shook his head. Let me get you some sugar packets. It should help cut the bitterness some more and 
Little man will get some great shut-eye. Thank you. She was trying so hard not to cry. He brought back a whole fistful of sugar packets and left her with a smile. Those small moments had actually given him some hope. Hope for humanity. Hope they were going to make it out. Gerard, please come to the cockpit. Kathy's voice rang out over the speakers. Anyone who was still screaming or sobbing stopped. The prayer circle halted their prayers and looked up. As he walked down the aisle, instead of mobs, people parted for him. They were too anxious to know what information the pilot was about to relay to him, to hound him with questions they now knew he didn't have the answers to. He paused a moment as he passed the cockpit bathroom that now served as Dan's coffin. He noticed now that blood had been seeping from under the door. His shoes squelched in the sticky carpet. His stomach did another flip-flop, but the contents of it stayed inside this time. He looked to the back of Kathy's head. Her eyes were plastered to the giant windshield in front of her. Hi, Kath. What a stupid thing to say, he thought. But it was easier than, hey, we gonna die or no? I won't stop. I'm going to keep going, she said. That's good. He put a comforting hand on her shoulder. But what it, what does that mean exactly? No matter what happens, we will just keep going. It's all we can do. Okay. But are we headed to Canada now? Yes. So, the lights. I can see lights out there. Are they? Before she could answer, he looked out into the distance. There they were, the pinpricks of light. As they appeared, turbulence rocked the plane. He heard screams from behind him. Can't we just land somewhere, anywhere, a field, a freeway, something? We are all probably already suffering from radiation poisoning, even being this high above. Those cities below will be suffering from nuclear fallout, even if they're miles away from a blast. I've been watching the winds carry the smoke across the entire countryside. We have to find somewhere far enough away from one of these things, which will probably be somewhere in the Canadian wilderness. It has, it'll be its own set of issues, but it's hope. What if we don't find anywhere like that? Gerard asked reluctantly. Then, I'll make sure we hit hard and fast. 
her eyes never once moved from the sky. Instead of returning to the passengers, Gerard sat in Dan's co-pilot chair and strapped himself in. He looked at Kathy, and she looked at him. Then, let's keep going. Next up on this night of fan favorites is by the incredibly talented Tess Rook. This is Death's Witness. I used to visit death-themed subreddits like Watch People Die and morbid curiosity very regularly. I don't know why, but I've always been drawn to that kind of stuff. Horror movies, real-life stories, it all fascinates me. I wish I had looked away, because there are some things you can't unsee. I remember one video in particular. A man is cut in half by a train, his legs severed and viscera scattered, while he miraculously and horribly remains alive for a few minutes, waiting for death. That one really got to me. Not just the carnage inflicted on the poor man, but the fact that a huge group of bystanders did nothing but film him. No one offered comfort. No one held his hand. Maybe that's why, when I was faced with a similar situation, I acted how I did. I was walking back to my office building near the end of my lunch break after getting a sandwich at a local deli. The weather was a perfect spring day blue sky with a light breeze and the scent of the ocean on the air. The tranquility was shattered by the screech of tires, the sound of metal on metal and the most horrendous screams I have ever heard. I quickly saw the source. A bicyclist had been hit by a truck and was lying half crushed on the side of the street. Everyone around was in similar shock, and it was like we all took a collective moment for our brains to catch up to what we were seeing. Suddenly, with the speed of an elastic band snapping back, time moved normally again, and people began calling for 911, directing traffic, clearing the scene, but no one approached the man. In that instant, I remembered the video. I knew what I had to do, and before I could think, I rushed to the victim's side. To say it was the worst thing I've ever seen is a gross understatement. The man's intestines were spilling out of a gash that nearly severed him in two. 
One of his legs was a pulp of red. And the smell, oh God, the smell was unfathomable. As I approached, I saw that my fear was confirmed. He was conscious. Imagine knowing you're mortally injured, aware that you're living the last moments of your life. It's not a fate I would wish on anyone. So I did what I could. I knelt by his side, careful not to look at his injuries more than necessary. His eyes were huge, with pupils blown out and the whites rolling like a wild horse's. As he saw me, he stilled a little and reached for me with his working arm. Shh, I murmured as I clasped his hand. I'm here. I've got you. I I didn't know what else to say in that moment. He stared at me, and his labored breathing slowed a little. Am I gonna die? He rasped, blood frothing in the corner of his lip. I couldn't lie. I couldn't give him false hope. We both knew the truth. Yes, but you have nothing to be scared of. You're going where we all end up eventually. I know this isn't what you want, but you're going on a new adventure. I tried to make my words even and calm, stroking the back of his hand. After that, we were silent, him broken and prone on the pavement, me his sentinel, cradling his hand in mine. The whole while, I prayed for his end to come quickly. Mercifully, he passed soon after, before the sirens of the approaching ambulance could even be heard. The paramedics found me still sitting with him, and when they took over, I quickly stumbled away and threw up the sandwich I'd eaten earlier. It was the hardest thing I had ever done, witnessing his last breath, but I knew it had been the right thing. I called into work shortly after and let my boss know what had happened. He was suitably appalled and told me to take as much time as I needed. (sighs) To be honest, I don't remember my commute home or how I got to my car in the first place. I stumbled into my apartment and got right into a hot shower, clothes and all, thinking only of washing the man's blood off. When I emerged later, scrubbed pink and feeling more exhausted than I ever had. I had only thoughts of sleeping for a long while. I moved slowly, like cold syrup, and entered my bedroom, flicking on the light. There, on my bed, was a beautifully wrapped gift box. In hindsight, I should have been more worried, knowing that no one had access to my apartment. But in that moment, 
my brain was functioning at a little more than static frequency. Puzzled, I carefully removed the shiny ebony paper. A cold chill seemed to seep from the box, and I opened it to reveal a mass of onyx fabric. Extricating it fully from the box, I held it up, revealing a long hooded cloak, the color of darkest midnight. It was then when I saw the card. In delicate calligraphy, it said only five words. For a job well done. Despite how it may appear, this is not a story about death. This is a story about free will. The weeks following the accident passed in a blur. I couldn't sleep and ended up with a prescription for some chemical aid, which succeeded in numbing my mind and blunting the edge of reality. For days, I didn't bathe and existed in a fog interrupted by tasteless meals and even more tasteless daytime TV. The cloak was put into the closet, crammed into the back by the leftover Christmas wrapping paper and spare linens, where it sat forgotten. After a month in a purgatory of grief and shock, I finally emerged and rejoined the living. Work resumed, I cautiously started going out with friends, and life moved on for a time. Although my mind never strayed too far from what I'd witnessed that day on the street, I was processing it, and slowly but surely I was coming to peace. It was about twelve weeks later that all of my progress came grinding to a violent halt. Again, it was a beautiful sunny day, birds chirping and not a single cloud in the sky. As I sipped my coffee on my patio, I saw that the apartment groundskeeper was about to do some mowing. I sat and watched him work, idly thinking about my own tasks for the day ahead. I reached for my coffee, savoring the morning when my left hand suddenly went numb. It felt like it had been dipped into ice water, pins and needles dancing across my flesh. I stood up suddenly, knocking into my patio table in my haste, looking for the source of the chill. At that moment, I saw the groundskeeper from the corner of my eye pushing the mower between one step and the next. Suddenly, he went stiff, a marionette with all his strings pulled taut. My hand forgotten, I turned just in time to see him collapse in the grass. The bird song stopped, along with everything else. In slow motion, I watched blades of grass float to the ground, and my discarded coffee cup seemed to be suspended in the air, like a wave crashing 
Time caught up suddenly. The cacophony of noise from the nearby street punctuated by the smash of my mug on the patio floor. And the span of a heartbeat, I was outside and beside the collapsed man. A neighbor had also seen him fall, and I could hear him on the phone with emergency dispatch. But one look at the groundskeeper, and I knew it was too late. So once more, I found myself holding the hand of a man, struggling through the last moments of his life. He clutched at his chest, frantically trying to draw a breath. While I supplicated, knees in grass clippings, praying for his peace, he gripped my hand tighter. Eyes metronome ticking between mine and the ring in his left hand. The truth of the situation seeming to settle in, he tried desperately to tell me something. It came out as a near whisper, impossible to decipher. Shh, I'll tell her you love her, but she already knows. From the wedding band on his finger, I guessed at what he was trying to say. Tears pulled in his eyes, but he nodded. The pleading look replaced by something closer to acceptance. Focus on your love. She can feel it. I took a deep breath, my own tears choking my voice. My words seemed to be lulling him, though, and a faint smile had appeared on his lips. Just think of all the stories you'll have to tell her when you see each other again. His eyes closed slowly, like a setting sun, and his chest stilled, while my hand, still clasped in his, gave another flare of icy cold. He was gone. Later, after the paramedics had been and went, and the crowd of neighbors had dispersed like carrion crows called home, I was again alone in my apartment. Although my hand had returned to a normal temperature, a hot shower was needed. Like after the first accident, I was numb. I guess death is cold. As the scalding water rained down on me, I couldn't stop my mind from going over the events of the two deaths I'd now borne witness to. The scenes looping, replaying in tandem, reflecting the fragility of life. I was not okay. I was deeply affected by what I had been involved in. But I also knew that, if given a do-over, I would make the same choices again. To be there for those last moments so they wouldn't be alone. When I finally stepped from the tub, the bathroom was thick with fog the mirror obscured by film. I blindly reached for a towel, but my hand settled on an unfamiliar fabric hanging from the rack. The inky black cloak was no longer tucked away in the closet. 
After witnessing the second man's passing, I was understandably checked out. Laughter was a memory. Happiness, a whispered rumor. I was scared to go outside, lest I be in the wrong place at the wrong time again. Although I was honored to have been able to hopefully bring a modicum of comfort to the men I'd seen pass, my mental state was suffering. I'd began getting headaches, ice picks driven deep behind my eyes, the only cure being isolation in a dark, silent room. My friends, despite my protests, were determined not to let me waste away behind closed doors. They brought care packages, kept me updated on the lives of mutual acquaintances, and even drove me to doctor's appointments. While I took a sabbatical from work and tried to find relief from my headaches, I was hounded constantly by the thought of the black hooded cloak. I hadn't moved it from the towel rack in the bathroom. The thought of even touching it too much for me to take on in my admittedly fragile state. On Sunday, I awoke inexplicably determined to get some fresh air into my lungs. So I ventured out to the beach near my house. Overwhelmed by the prospect of crowds, I ensured I arrived early and claimed a spot in the shade under a beautiful willow tree. I nestled into my blanket, closed my eyes, and let the sounds of the gently lapping waves drift over me. It was the most peaceful I had felt since everything had happened. I don't know how long I lay there in the magical place between sleep and wakefulness, blessedly free from headaches. When I finally fully woke, the sun was high in the sky, and although my patch of shade had shrunk and I could feel the beginnings of a sunburn, my left hand tingled with a chill. I've never understood the saying, my blood ran cold until that moment. I knew without a doubt that I was about to witness another death. My mind raced as I considered running. My self-preservation panicked at the thought that this was no longer something I could chalk up to a coincidence. But it was too late. A woman's voice, tentative at first, began calling for her child. Harper? Harper, honey, come to mommy. The woman's calls quickly became more frantic, and soon others had taken up the call as well. I stood up from my blanket, eyes pulled to the horizon where a small shape was barely discernible amongst the waves. I could have alerted someone else, but I knew this was my task alone. Like the inevitability of death, I had begun to accept what was happening. I sprinted to the water and plunged in, 
thankful for my years spent swimming as I quickly covered the distance to the child. By now, others had seen where I was heading and were attempting to catch up and help. But I was the first to arrive by a large margin, as I knew I would be. When I reached the little girl, I saw she was small, no older than eight or nine. Her long blonde hair streaming around her like a mermaid. Her blue eyes were open, and as I reached for her, she slipped under the water. I dove down, her gaze locking with mine as I followed her towards the sandy bottom of the ocean. She had already gone still, no longer thrashing, her hands delicately floating in front of her in a graceful arc of a ballerina's pose. Now parallel and eye to eye, I took her small fingers in my numb left hand, and the air left her lungs in a final cloud of tiny, perfect bubbles. I swear I heard her sigh. For a few heartbeats, we swayed together under the surface. The quiet calm, a private refuge from the chaos I knew was occurring above. When I finally broke the surface, bringing her up with me, a crowd of other swimmers was there to help pull her to shore. Although it was too late. A few people attempted to resuscitate her on the beach. Seeing all I had needed to and knowing there was nothing more to do, I stumbled away to the tree, forgotten by the other rescuers and the hysterical mother, now weeping over her child's slight frame. I collapsed on the blanket, Unable to move or form a cohesive thought. Slowly, with infinite tenderness, a warmth settled around me. Looking down at myself, I saw that the black cloak had been draped around my shoulders. I whirled around, desperate to see who had wrapped it around me, to finally identify the gift giver who had been my near-constant cause of fear for the last few months. No one was there, and no footprints marred the sand behind me. With raised hair and on the verge of a panic attack, I all but fled back to my home, determined to check myself into a psychiatric facility or a church as soon as possible. At home, I hung the cloak up in the entryway, unaware as to why I hadn't left it behind. I was about to call a friend for help when I saw that I had a voicemail on my phone. It was the doctor's office, asking me to come in to discuss the results of my recent MRI. I knew then, without having to hear the diagnosis, that it was something bad. The next day, the events at the beach put aside while I attended a meeting at the hospital brought sobering news. The cause of my headaches 
although something I had tried to shrug off as inconsequential, was in fact an inoperable tumor. The prognosis, stiffly delivered by an unflinching specialist, gave me an expiry date akin to that of a carton of milk. There was a lot of talk about keeping me comfortable and about decisions I would need to make, but there is one decision I must make before any of the others. When I arrived home, still in shock from the death sentence I was handed, a letter was waiting for me on my credenza. The beautiful calligraphy, written in the same hand as the original card accompanying the cloak, bedecked the envelope addressed to me by name. With shaking fingers, I began to read. Death has never been the end, and as yours is approaching, you must decide. Will you wear the cloak? The choice, as always, is yours. So here I sit, my laptop the only illumination in my room, the cloak now draped across my bed. I have decisions to make. It's strange the things that come to mind when one contemplates their impending end. I thought I would have sat mournful over the places I had not traveled, the people I'll miss, but instead, one quote in particular keeps playing over in my mind, like a song on the radio that I can't escape. In the words of John Keats, For many a time, I have been half in love with easeful death. I wonder, as I prepare to meet him, if I will indeed love death, my mysterious benefactor and shadow. There is a nobility in the way I picture him, unmoving, endless, quiet. I try to picture the after, and I find it's like trying to imagine a new unseen color. Despite my attempt to pry answers from the cloak's giver, None have appeared. I wrote a return message on the letter left for me. But in the morning, no new words have been penned. The uncertainty is the hardest part. If I accept the cloak, I have somewhat of an idea what my eternity will entail. Joining the ranks of reapers, ferrymen, guides. I wonder idly which of the myths are closest to the truth? I wonder at the enormity of it. The possibility haunts me, however, that taking up this mantle will exclude me from the end which all others experience. What if at the end of the lighted tunnel, a paradise awaits from which I would be barred entry. What if my loved ones are forever waiting on the other side? 
an eternity spent wondering why I have not appeared. Somewhat cruelly, I have been given a reprieve from the headaches, but the time bomb in my head remains. At least my mobility returned, and I was able once again to leave my apartment in an attempt to enjoy the time I have left. These attempts were futile, however, as my role as witness to death had increased in frequency as I was no longer presented with only the passing of humans. As I walked around my neighborhood last night, a pitiful mew combined with the now familiar tingling in my left hand drew my attention. Under a towering cedar hedge lay a small black and white cat, mercifully free from blood. Now playing my part by rote, I approached and knelt by the animal, tentatively reaching out to stroke its satiny fur. Its ribs were easily felt, its body withered by old age. The cat calmed almost instantly, nuzzling into the chill of my fingers, and for the first time since all of this began, I wasn't scared. There is an undeniable honor in this gift, or curse. When the cat had stilled, and my hand once again began to warm, I placed its nearly weightless body in a small grave I had dug under the cedar. It was such a stark contrast to the commotion that accompanies human death. To be silent and alone. No sirens wail, no tears or cries or frantic shouts. It was beautiful. A bird with a broken back shattered upon my window. A dog struck by a careless driver and left behind like discarded trash. A moth, wings frail from a too short life, spent chasing flames. All of them sought me, and I, in turn, was drawn to their ebbing light. I regret now, as I am entombed safely within my home, a husk unable to venture out, that they will not be able to find me here. I hope someone else will comfort them when needed. My lungs struggle now, while my heart trudges doggedly on with my Trojan horse chest. Hopes and secrets and all the things left unsaid guarded safely behind my ribs. I wish I had saved my voice for something important. A grand last statement. But it is as though all of my remaining strength has pooled within my cold left hand. I know that my friends and family trust in my love for them. I leave behind no large estate to be settled, nor children to leave bereft. Compared to many, my death is easy and uncomplicated. My thoughts shift, machine gun rapid between I'm fine 
I'm at peace with this. I'm ready. I'm, and please, I'm scared. I don't want to go. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I wish I had done more, seen more, been more. Please don't let me go. I don't want to go. Don't let me, when I'm gone, don't let me be a half-remembered name said only out of obligation and false grief. I don't want to be alone. I can't. I can't. I can't. Deep breath pulled through lips pressed tight with stubborn resolve, lending strength to Duggan heels still fighting against my end. I regret not leaving my phone within reach, not seeking hospice care, not asking someone, anyone, to sit with me and talk me through this. Talk me out. Gently, a hand clasps mine. Looking up from my bed, unable to move my head much, my muscles as pliant as a newborn calf's, I'm struck by the way the black cloak he wears seems to absorb all of the light in the room. He's taller than I thought, which brings me to near hysterical laughter, the absurdity of the moment too much to bear. Hello, I whisper, shifting my gaze to where his eyes might be, concealed within the abyss of his cloak's hood. For an eternity he is silent, his hand cold in mine, the chill oscillating between our fingers, dancing, becoming acquainted. His voice is a breeze through a cornfield, the crackling of burning wood. His right hand motions to the cloak I was given, pooled at the end of my bed. I try once more to weigh the options, but my mind is consumed by the enormity of the event. I feel as though I may fall off the earth plunging into the cold vacuum of the universe. The thread which tethers me here is fraying. I feel light. I feel the strands connecting me to everything else, the force between all living beings. I am breathing in the stars, and they are breathing me back. I was right. There's nothing to fear. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. My answer is a single nod. And with that, we are floating. The cloak around me, its edges blending with his. We are unending. I am ready. You made the right choice, he says. Voice now strong and clear as he pulls back his hood. And we begin.
Thanks for listening. Thank you to all of my uh, my authors tonight. It was me and Tess, Tess Rook. Thank you so much, Tess, for your incredible story. That came out years ago. I well, Nuclear Flight did as well at this point. I really hope you enjoyed these two episodes or these two stories. Again, I thought this would be just a, a fun thing to show off some of the things that you can find within this expansive catalog. I have been doing this for over five years, so I know it's a little intimidating. I've had a few of my newcomers ask where to start, and here's uh, just a couple to start with. And yeah, from there, I I can't tell you. I mean, maybe skip those first few. They're good stories, but I just think the audio is rough. That's just my own opinion, though. (laughs) Uh, If you like the show, you can follow it on Twitter, Instagram, or sorry, Twitter is not Twitter anymore. What's it called? X. X, uh, Instagram, Facebook, um, all at scary to sleep, all one word. If you'd like a story to be submitted to the show, or if you'd like to submit a story for the show, that's the way to say that. Um, you can send it to scare to sleep at gmail.com and I will put it in my submissions folder. Let's see. Oh, and if you like to listen to these episodes ad free, you can find them on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. You can listen to all new episodes ad free, as well as there are a lot of bonus episodes that start at $3 and up. And now begins the portion of the episode where I ramble a little for you to fall asleep to or to finish whatever you're doing. So if you are not into the ramble, then I will see you next week. And hello, fellow ramblers or rambleys. Hello, rambleys. Um, <laughs> let's see. I last week went to, it's called Senespia. They do a few different events, but I went to see Poltergeist at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. It was so much fun. I put like one picture on Instagram, on the show's Instagram. But if you've never seen a horror movie in a cemetery, I highly recommend it. I know Synespia has a few more showings um, until, I believe, until September 6th, I want to say. They kind of stop for the fall, which I don't understand because in Southern California, we don't exactly have a a chilly fall. I mean, it, it might get chilly there at night, but God, the idea of like them selling hot chocolate and bundling up in the grass, I think that sounds amazing. I really think they should go through fall, but that's just my opinion. It was so much fun, though. If you haven't tried it, if you are live around L.A. or you live close enough to commute into L.A. just for that, it's it's such a blast. And I'm sure they do things like this all over the place, but I just don't know how many other places actually show films in cemeteries. But if they do near you, I recommend going. We, My friend and I brought a picnic, and we, like, we basically went to Trader Joe's and just stocked up on snacks, <laughs> which is another reason I didn't really bake this week because I kind of, uh, my eyes were bigger than my stomach and I kind of overdid it at Trader Joe's <laughs> with all the snacks. So, oh, I don't know what that was. If you heard a scream, I apologize. I think there is a child outside screaming. Um, I, it's definitely has nothing. I have nothing to do with the child screaming. I promise there are no captives in my basement. I don't even have a basement, officer. (laughs) And I wanted to say, though, thank you so much to those of you who were so supportive to my run on Creepy. It was so kind of John to give me that opportunity and so many new new faces, new people around. And you've been so kind to send me such great emails and DMs about how you're glad you found the show. And I'm glad you found the show. 
And yeah, like I said, I'll, I'll talk to John. We'll see if maybe I can get some of those episodes put onto this feed. If for some reason, you know, you want to hear those stories, but you can't access creep. I don't know. You would be, if you can access my show, you can access creepy, but I don't know. I don't know. I just, maybe someday we'll put them on my feed, but we'll, we'll see. I'll talk. I'll, I'll talk and get back to you. It won't be for quite a while though. So, but I had so much fun really pushing through writer's block. Basically every night, um, just a little look into my world. I had been writing them and editing and, you know, doing the whole shebang every week, week to week. And there were a lot of nights, (laughs) a lot of Tuesday mornings where I wasn't going to bed until 7am trying to get these done and perfected. And I really wanted to put out a good product and I hope I did the, I hope I did it justice. I hope I did creepy justice because it was a lot of fun, but pulling five stories out of my brain when I, I do original stories on my show, you know, not I pretty infrequently just because I like to take my time and things, but this was, it was a real good lesson for me. And I'm definitely going to be doing more original stuff for scare you to sleep because I proved to myself that I can do it. So it was great. It was exhausting. And I'm so glad that I had that opportunity again. And I'm also kind of glad it's over for right now, just because I'm very tired. (laughs) Oh, and expect a guided nightmare next week on the show. I'm going to be having a new guided nightmare. That way, you know, I can balance it out a little. I've been giving so much love over to a different show and I've been giving love. I've been, I've been here. I've been here every week, but still, I feel like you guys deserve a little extra love. So I'm going to be doing a guided nightmare next week and uh, some bonus stuff for Patreon. And I think that's all. I think I've rambled long enough. I've kept you too long. Go enjoy your evenings. Um, Drink your water and go get some sleep. Sweet dreams.